our, our brother Bill is, is on vacation right now. And so we are privileged to have Rick Pratt bring us the word of God. He's our director of congregational life and director of men's ministries. Rick, come and bring it to us. Thanks, Dave. Any under the table money get us into that baby boomer category, maybe? What is the cutoff on that anyway? Am I a boomer? No. If you have to ask, you're not. Is that kind of the, the test there? Okay. Okay, thank you for that. Well, let's uh, let's go before the Lord this morning. It's a privilege to be able to fill in for Bill and to uh, get to spend the week reading and studying Scripture and uh, bringing um, things I've learned to all of you and asking God to bless us. So let's go before Him. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that all is well. Um, it's all is well regardless of circumstances because... The, the future is set. Our destiny as your children is sure, it's certain, it's unmovable as you are. You have made promises to us that are, that are unchangeable because they're tied and bound to who you are. And so we're here this morning for that purpose, to be reminded of those promises, to seek to live our lives in and through them to recognize again who we are and whose we are. And so we ask that you would do that work in us this morning. Pray that you'd use your word, um, use your messenger uh, to speak to us, to challenge us, to encourage us, uh, to live a life worthy of you, though that's impossible, and to live our lives in such a way that others will see not people who have it all together, but people who have come and found where real life is found. So... Bless our time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, uh, last week I began and uh, in this section I get one more week, one more crack at this. We're going to get as far as we can next week, but uh, kind of worked on the first half of this. You might remember that this is the letter that Paul wrote. He wrote to the churches in Galatia. He had made a trip, one journey at this point. And what happened is many had received the message of trust and faith in Christ alone and the gospel, the good news. And and they believed and a church was established and elders were put in place and good things were happening. And then others came in with a different message to add to that message. And that message was a message of adding in the Old Testament law, some of the stipulations there, namely circumcision, that said you need to add something to faith in Christ to really make this thing work. And so he's writing to them to, uh, to really to, uh, you know, to go against that teaching, to speak against it. And then he writes to encourage them to remember the gospel that he brought to them. And so in the section we're at in, in chapter five is really a practical ethics of the Christian life. And I'll explain a little bit more, but this is going to read one through 15. Last week, we really looked at the first half and the, this week we'll look at the second section. This is the word of the Lord for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. 
Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See, there's a couple of ditches that Paul addresses in this section for us. A couple of ditches that we are prone to fall into as human beings, that we're prone to fall into even as believers. And we talked about last week, one of those ditches being legalism. Today, we're going to look at the other ditch that we can fall into, we're prone to, and that's license. That's the other side, if you will. If legalism is adherence to the law or behavior or stipulations or rights or certain things that we might do that we might add to Christ, license, basically on the other edge, it says it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live. One says everything matters on how you live, and the other one says nothing matters. And so that's what he's writing to them, to hit both of these ditches, both of these places, because both of them ultimately lead to the same place, both enslaved. Neither are the gospel, and the gospel provides a freedom from both ditches to keep us out of legalism and to keep us out of license. And this idea of freedom is critical in this section as we look at this. I mentioned last week that you could break Galatians down this letter into three parts. The first two chapters you see, it's Paul's history, his biography, autobiography, if you will, that his authority as an apostle as he comes to them in chapters three and four. It's really his doctrinal argument to them. He says, now listen, this is the gospel and this is how you'd understand it from the Old Testament. And theologically, namely, he identifies the doctrine of justification that we're made righteous, we're made pure because of Christ, as well as adoption. We're brought then into his family. Those are the key kind of pillars of doctrine he presents in chapters 3 and 4. But then in chapters 5 and 6, it's really the, the Christian life now. It's practically, what's the experience of the Christian life? What's the ethic of the Christian? How are we supposed to now live and experience this gospel, this truth of these doctrines of justification and of adoption? And he says freedom is the key word here, that we experience a freedom in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other as a result of what he has done. And so that's the, that's what we're talking about now. He's wanting to give us a picture of how now do we live this life out? What should we experience and how do we live this new life? And as we look at this section, we're going to look at the, really the last three verses of this section as we look at the freedom from being forced to live unto ourselves. For us to determine ultimately what life is to be like, to live according to our flesh that's there. But the freedom theme is an important one. And I spent a little time last week talking about it from Paul's perspective. The freedom that he is describing here is a spiritual freedom. It's a it's a reality in our relationship with God. It's a reality that we have and we experience as a result of what Christ has done. No longer do we have to keep track. No longer do we have to keep score. No longer do we have to compare with each other, compete with each other. There's a freedom we have in our relationship with God as we come into this place, as we meet with him here, as we live and walk with him throughout our days. There's a freedom we have to 
approach him, to find acceptance, to find security, to find provision as a result of that. So there's a real freedom we have, and it's a result of what Christ has done. It's a result of his justification of us and the fact that we are adopted, we are part of his family. And we don't want to confuse the spiritual freedom that's being described here with other notions of freedom, which are certainly real and exist in our world. We don't want to confuse social freedom or political freedom or economic freedom or psychological freedom or any other kind of way of understanding freedom with this kind of freedom. Those are built upon and understood through the lens of certain Uh, aspects and structures in the world around us or within us that prevent us from living in certain kinds of ways. And those are valuable conversations, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. As important as those are, this concept of spiritual freedom he's describing is exactly what the gospel brings. And it's exactly what we need. It's exactly what he represents and brings our greatest and our deepest need Because, you see, none of those other kinds of freedom can free us from what we most need to be freed from, our sin, from death, from flesh, our flesh, from Satan. And the gospel brings freedom from all of those things, the deepest and most important things that we need to be freed from. And by the way, it is the freedom of the gospel that actually makes the other kinds of freedoms possible that we can grow in. So this is the freedom that's been described. It's a freedom in our relationship with God that is a means to real life. It's a way to live, as some have said, with the roof off and the walls down. We get to live without hiding, hiding from God, without hiding from each other. And so this is the freedom that Paul is describing. This is the freedom that the gospel brings. And he calls from the beginning to the end of this section that we are to live in and through and understand what this freedom really is. And last week we looked at that we have this freedom from Legalism, freedom from having to live, adding anything to what Christ has done. That we indeed, if we add anything to what He has done, then we nullified. It. It's undermined the work that He did, and so we don't want to pretend that we can add any of our work or effort or goodness really to find life and acceptance from God apart from Christ. That the cross and anything we add, in their case, it's circumcision. In ours, it might be all kinds of things that we would add in to our life to gain a standing. But it's it's in opposition to the cross. That the cross stands alone. And the minute we add something we can do to the cross, it loses its power. It loses its offense, as he wrote about as well. Anything we add leads us down a road of adding more and more and more in which ultimately enslaves us and prevents us from experiencing this freedom as he writes to them. He says, don't miss this. Remember, there's a vertical and there's a horizontal dimension to this freedom. We live in freedom with God and freedom with each other. It affects both. The laws that we add in are not just about our relationship with God. They, They are an attempt to gain some sort of standing even above you, above each other. So now the second half, if legalism is one, he writes to them now, he writes to them, he says, the gospel at the same time frees us from bondage of living only for ourselves, from living only from ourselves. The other ditch, the other pendulum swing here, the extreme also enslaves is is dangerous, it's offensive to the work of, of Christ because instead of living under the law, it lives in spite of the law and it misses the very end of the goal of our freedom. 
It says, don't miss it, that the end or the goal of your freedom is not yourself. It's not your flesh. It's not what you want to do. There's something more that orients our freedom, something more that this freedom is moving for. If in the first case, in legalism, they forgot the source of their freedom. In this case, license, we forget the end or the goal of our freedom. It has a, a focal point, is a kind of nature that we need to understand. And so he writes to them that as the very character of Christ is formed in us, this outward end, this growth, this transformation has an end that moves beyond exactly what we would choose or we would want. So first we see as he, this, this form, there's a, there's a statement of truth, of fact, followed by a command we see in this, he says, don't don't miss what this freedom is about. Don't miss the end of the freedom in verse 15 or verse 13. Rather, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We saw this in verse one. It's the same thing. There's a statement of truth followed by a command. In, the, in verse one, we see he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And the command was stand firm in that truth. Here's the truth. Now live in light of that. You are free. Now stand in that freedom. Don't give it away. And in this case, we have the same form. The indicative followed by the imperative. The statement of fact or followed by the command. For you are called to freedom, brothers, is the statement of fact. It's true. This, you are called to this. And then the, the command in light of that, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't allow it to be the end. That your flesh, what you want... Your selfish, self-centered desires to be the end of your freedom, because that's not ultimately where this is supposed to take you. This is not the end goal of freedom. And, and the language here is, is helpful when he says, don't allow your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That word opportunity is a military term. If you think about a military, I'm not much of a military, I don't know a ton about it, but you realize that an army has to have a base of operations from which they begin to take, make advances into territory. This word opportunity is that. Don't allow your freedom to be a base of operation for the flesh to take over. Don't allow your freedom in Christ to be a place in which your flesh begins to rule and make advances on your soul. And so be careful about that. That's the opportunity, that picture. It's a springboard where the flesh can actually rule in the life of a Christian, which should not be. Flesh idea is an idea. It's an important one. Here it's, it's the fallen human nature. It's the selfish, self-centered part of all of us that wants what we want no matter what it takes says that our flesh would rule what we would want. It's, it's the center of indulgence, of self-assertion, where flesh can rule. And you see here in this ruling of the flesh is the same location that legalism would come or license would go. The same end point is the same. It's to be enslaved. In one case, under the law. In another case, under our own flesh. In what we want, in our own indulgence. And the gospel delivers us from both, both extremes. They have the, both the same source and the same end. The source is our own effort, our own interests, and the end is ultimately enslavement. Another way to see this freedom is you would say it like this. Others have said it's helpful. We have freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And that's what he's wanting them to see, that this, this freedom, the end of it is not our own indulgence. It's ultimately there's some other end that's there. And we will look at this. He says it's not we don't want this base of operations, the flesh to set. But 
And verse 13, through love, serve one another. That's the orientation of this freedom. That's the end of this freedom. That's where it's supposed to go. It points in a direction that's antithetical to our own flesh, antithetical, opposite to what we would want in this discussion. He orients things in a completely opposite way, opposite of the flesh. But what's important is we think about this freedom and what drives it. We can talk about freedom this kind of way that we have freedom to do whatever we want. And Paul says if we go down that road, we miss something really very important. That's a part of the whole text here. Next week, we're going to talk more about it. You see, this freedom is now animated and energized about some, by something completely different. It's animated by the very Spirit of God. Early on, we, he talked about the Spirit of God by faith living in us. That there's a new orientation to our lives. There's a new appetite. There's a new desire that's been placed in the Christian that now gives shape and form to the direction that we go. That taste, that desire is there, not perfectly, not exhaustively, but it's there and cannot be Denied. We see it. If you're a believer and you go, I don't do this perfectly, but I know what I really want. There's a, a desire there. There's a new creation that's been placed in us. In verse 15 of chapter 6, Paul says this. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That there's something new that has been done to us and within us. You see, the weakness of the law. That's what they didn't quite get. You see, it's not about going back to the law. That didn't bring life. The weakness was of the law was it's the fact that it only had an ability to reveal violation and to reveal corruption and to reveal ways that we had not had not kept it up. It, it operates negatively. It could never induce obedience. It could never bring about a heart level kind of obedience in the life of the of a person. It can only operate externally on a person would only reveal what's sinful. It couldn't get at the heart. As J.F. Packer says, law-keeping and law-breaking are first and foremost about the desire of a heart. It's not just the externalities. It's about the heart. If you're a parent, you realize that what you want your kid isn't just to do, do and to follow your rules. You want them to love and to trust and obey you out of their desire to please you. Not just to follow the rules you put in place for the sake of the rules, but that there's something below the surface there. And that's the weakness of the law. It can't go any further than the surface. It can only push. It can't induce. It can't entice in healthy and helpful ways. It cannot get ultimately to the heart. And that's the promise. That's the promise of the new covenant. It's the promise of the gospel that God puts in what we couldn't do anything about. He puts in a want to. He puts in a desire. He transforms us from the inside. He places in us a new inclination. The very heart of the gospel is that something new is within us residing a new creation. And that is the message of this gospel, this new creation that he's placed within us. This spirit of his son now dwells in us to create within us what nothing outside could so he's placed his law within us by that to give us a desire. I have an illustration and it's not always good to qualify your illustrations, but in some ways I apologize beforehand if, uh, as I use this a couple of years ago, a few years ago, um, I watched the TV show Lost. 
Okay, there's my confession. Okay. The TV show Lost. I was watching it, and now it's a crazy show, right? Who knows? But there's one particular episode that was fascinating to me. They're all kind of strange. But this one in particular, you get these things out of secular shows. There was, you know, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but basically, here's the, the basic storyline. Ben Linus is a bad guy. Jack is the doctor. He's a good guy. In this particular case, Ben Linus finds out that he is going to die unless he gets a surgery. Jack is a surgeon. He's a very good surgeon. And so what does the bad guy do? He captures the good guy, Jack, the surgeon, to bring him to his island to force him to to do the surgery on him. Okay, you got the storyline, right? You'll see where I'm going in just a minute. They have a conversation as Jack realizes why he's been brought to this island. And Ben Linus tells him, he says, you know, I'm here and need this done. And Jack says, so let me get this right. He says, you, you want me to do this surgery on you. That's why you brought me here. And Ben Linus makes this comment. This, this is the phrase. This is my illustration, the point. He says, no, I don't want you to do the surgery. I want you to want to do the surgery. What I want is more than just you to do it externally because I can't force you. I want you to do it. Now, enough with that story. I want you to capture it just for a minute. You see what God desires most, what he wants most from us. It's not just that we would follow laws. We can follow a few laws. That's not the point. What he wants from us is a heart level desire to follow his laws, to please him, that we're driven not externally, we're driven internally, that that would be a desire that's placed there. And that's the very thing that he has done within us. He has placed his spirit within us to bring about a desire that we couldn't have come up with. And no external structure could that we would want him. There's a new creation there that now we want to. And if you're a believer, deep down, we know what we really want. Even as we struggle with sin, we know I don't want to do that. I want something more than just a sin. I want Christ. I want life. And I know that's where it's to be found. And this desire that he's placed within us is the root of all other desires. And it's not perfect and it's not complete, but it grows from that place through God's spirit to cultivate in us the deepest desire that will drive us to him. And indeed, as we think about this freedom and the orienting aspect of this freedom, this new life drives our freedom to want to please him and ultimately to serve others. That this forms in us the truth of who Christ is and we desire to do that. So we're now oriented in a completely different way by virtue of his spirit, by virtue of this new creation within us, the things that we want, the things that we go after, this deep desire that drives all others. The deepest truth about the Christian is that we have we have a new life that is growing within us that over the course of our lifetime will find its voice and it will drive us and move us because it's the very life of Christ there and it orients our freedoms. And Paul says, don't miss that. There's something new here. There's something unique in you. And and this freedom now is to be used in verse 14. He says, but through love, serve one another. That's the orientation. That's where it goes. Use your freedom to serve. And you see love and service connected there. And then he goes on to say that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in one phrase. You shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. Instead of our own selfish wills driving, instead of our flesh, our own interest driving us now. Our freedom now is driven by love and service for Christ and for others. See, new creation plus freedom equals a desire to serve. And that's where this takes us. That's what this, this freedom really looks like. 
This freedom we see here, there are two words that are juxtaposed to each other in this text. As we read this, he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather serve. You see that freedom and service go hand in hand. Freedom and service. This service word is bond servant, slave. The noun form is doulos. It says that we now use our freedom in a unique way to actually be slaves, to actually serve one another. And you go, how can that be? How can in freedom we actually serve? We actually become slaves. He says, look at Christ. Look at the paradoxes seen in Christ himself, the one who completely free gave his life to serve. And so now we use our freedom in this way. Martin Luther said it in this way, comparing freedom and obligation, freedom and servanthood. In two sentences back to back, he says, a Christian is free and independent in every respect, a bondservant to none. A Christian is a dutiful servant in every respect, owning a duty to everyone. We're free, servants to no one, and yet we're servants to all. And the only way we understand as we understand is we look at the life of Christ and we see in him this paradox, freedom laid down in order to serve. And then Paul compresses all of the law even further down than what Christ did in verse 14. For the whole law, all of it is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how can Paul do that? Jesus certainly did, right? Matthew 22, what's the greatest law? What's the most important aspect of the law? And he says to love your Lord, your God, with your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and then to love your neighbors yourself. Two parts, the whole, the same. Paul says it's even, we can even compress it down even further. To love your neighbors yourself. Now, how can he do that? How do we understand what's going on there? Well, it's certainly not saying that the first part of that isn't important. It is absolutely necessary. What he's saying is that the second half of that, love for our neighbor is proof and evidence of the first half. That the way that we know if we love God, right, the vertical dimension, the way we see that is horizontally, is through love, as we love our neighbors ourselves. And that's when he says that's what this takes us. It calls us to love. It calls us to fulfill the command, the very law of God through love. That's the end of this freedom. That's the goal of this freedom, not our own flesh, not our own selfish interest, but serving others, laying our lives down as Christ did in that same way. And we see this freedom is to be used in that way. So as he writes to them, he says, don't allow your freedom to be a base of operations for your flesh, that it would rule over you. You've missed it if that's the case. But understand that it's oriented by something even greater, something serving and we lay our lives down for that we it's we're oriented now animated by the new the spirit of god as he operates within us when a few application points from as we look at this call to live not a life of license or a life of legalism but a life ultimately of freedom in which we're called to love and to serve in this way so the question i have for this what's true What's true from this text that we walk away with? First, the question is this. What, what does the freedom of the gospel enable us to do? What does the freedom of the gospel, how does it help us? How do we see things differently? Okay. How do we see the world and how we live differently? It enables us to find life. That understanding this freedom leads to service. See, freedom properly oriented around love for others, not just ourselves. And it's animated by the very spirit of God leads us to life. 
Life comes from being properly oriented around this love. See, the fact is, we're, we're all lovers of something. We will love something, the question is what. And that, the greatest love we have, will orient the rest of our lives. And as our greatest love, the greatest desires for God himself and to love others as he's called us to, then that will orient the rest of our loves. It will orient them. It will order them in helpful ways. And life is found there as we love what's most important, what he loves. So we actually find life there. But secondly, how does the freedom of the gospel inform or help us? It also gives us an understanding now of the law. You know, Paul wrote in Galatians or in Romans chapter six, as he talks about the use of the law, again, this this other ditch of of license. And he writes to them and they say somehow this idea that's, well, if you know, if in sin, grace abounds, shouldn't we sin all the more? Because no, 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 you don't get it. So what's the role of the law now? If we don't have to live under the law, we don't have to live in obedience to it as a means to life. Then the question is, what's its role? What's the relationship of the Christian now to the law? What do, what do we do with it? Do we discard it completely? We don't live underneath it and we now have a new relationship, a different purpose. Instead of being under it now, it's, its road, its role in our lives is to lead to life. If you think about being on the road that li- of life, of eternal life, it's like the guardrails and the road signs that help us continue to stay on it. To keep us from running off of that road to life. It's Christ himself living in us and enable us to actually experience the life that we have. You already have it. Now, the law helps us stay on it, understand where it takes us. I had an illustration that one of my professors gave me. I really like it. Uh, not just because of the subject matter, but, but partly because it. it has to do with ice cream, one of my favorite things. But anyway, this was his illustration of the role of the law, okay, in the Christian now. And he had kids, he had young kids when he was talking about this. He goes, I see it like this. This is the role of the law in the Christian's life. It's like my, I give my son an ice cream cone, he's got an ice cream cone. And now as a parent, as, a, as with a young kid, my role is to help him get the ice cream in him. So I give him instructions about how to eat the ice cream. But now the instructions are not to for him to gain the ice cream. He already has it. My instructions are to make sure the ice cream gets in him, not on him or on somebody else or on the ground, or he loses it all completely. And if you pull that, that idea, we have life. And the law now that he has, that God has given to us, the law of Christ enables us to enjoy and experience the life that he's given to us. So the new role that the law has in our lives is no longer as a slave, as a slave master. It's now as a a helper to assist us on this life as we go. J.I. Packer put it like this as he related this new role of the law to the Christian. He writes, To be sure the Christian keeps the law non-legalistically, from life, rather for life, not for gain, but out of gratitude. He obeys God, not as a sinner trying to win salvation, but as a son of God, rejoicing the gift of salvation that is already his. He never forgets, however, that like Paul, he is not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. So he seeks to please his master by keeping the master's commands. This, the proof of love, is also the path to true holiness, a path which we must be careful to follow without cutting any corners, 
For moral carelessness is spiritual carnality and is holiness negated rather than fulfilled. He says it's not life. It's been given to us, but now its role is not for it's not for life. It's to help us find it and live in it. It's not for gain, but it's out of gratitude. So what we learn now is the, the law. We don't live in opposition to it. We don't live against it. We want to live in and by it because it expresses the very heart of God. We don't do it perfectly. Not very well sometimes. But we recognize where it leads us. What else? The other freedom that the gospel brings enables us. It, it enables us to find life and allows us to relate to the law now in this new kind of way. And then thirdly, it frees me from me. The freedom of the gospel frees me from me. You see, that base of operations of the flesh is enslaving. And I realize that my own desires will do nothing but enslave me. My interests, my desires will take me down that road, which will ultimately bring that about. And as the cross crushes and frees us from from having to to earn our salvation on our own. So in this case, this freedom frees us from having to live this life, having to come and come up with it ourselves. It's animated by the spirit fills us to find life. And I'm no longer driven by my own interests, no longer driven by the flesh. It's there. It's there. It's still real. We'll still battle it. Verse 15 gives us a picture of a community of people who live by the flesh or in a legalistic kind of way. Both. Verse 15, he writes, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed. What happens is you cease to become humans. This language is animal language, biting and devouring, consuming. If we only want what we can get, we have our own interests, our own flesh in mind, or I'm trying to climb over you legalistically, then what happens is nothing good grows and we become animals in that respect. And there's certainly nothing good that comes out of that. So we need to understand that life is found here. A relationship to the law is found. We have freedom now to abide by it. It's the road to life, and I'm freed from me. That's what's true. Now, what do we do? What do we do? There's two commands in here. There's two parts to the command. One is a negative command. No longer allow your flesh to be give opportunity, or your freedom to give opportunity to your flesh. Don't allow your this freedom to give this base of opportunity for your flesh. So how is it that we can keep our flesh from abusing our freedom? How do we keep our our own selfish interests from abusing the freedom we have in Christ? There's a couple things I think are helpful. Two questions. Put them in the first person form because they are first and foremost for me and then for you. First of all, do I think that my Christian freedom is an end in itself? Or do I understand my Christian freedom as an as a means to something else? Do I see my freedom as an end or a means to something else? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 related to this topic, this this committed, this this idea that freedom is to be used to be serving others. He writes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not, not all things build up. And he goes on to say, let no one seek his own good, but the good of another. Do I see it just as an end, my own end? Do I see it as a means to actually helping others, building others up my life? If it's just mine to use, I might misuse it. There was a Christianity Today article a couple couple months ago. It was fascinating. And basically it looked at Christian freedom in relationship to the use of alcohol. 
in the church. And this person had made an observation that somehow there's an increasing use of alcohol in the church. And it used the basis of freedom for this for this use. Now, it was an interesting article. And what was most helpful about it is that it asked the right questions. I'm not sure I completely agree with all of the conclusions, but some very important questions were asked. And not, I'm implying this not just to alcohol, but to anything. The question is, am I using my freedom to really help and build up others? Do I have an understanding? Am I even asking the question, how is the use of my freedom helping or hurting others? Or am I just concerned about using my own freedom in this way? It's an important question to ask. It's not easy to answer, but it's necessary. I'm still subject to my own conscience and what I do. I'm not subject to another man's conscience, but I am called to live my life and to live my freedom to orient around the benefit and how this might benefit or help others. And so some important part, how do I see it as an end or a means to an end of actually loving Others And we're encouraged, we're called to use our freedom to build up and to serve. But the next question goes on in terms of abusing our freedom or misusing the freedom has to do with the degree to which it can enslave us. Am I in danger of being enslaved, dependent or addicted in the use of my freedom? Am I in danger of being mastered by my own use of my own freedom? It's an important question for us to ask. Certainly as people, many of us know and understand what that feels like to be enslaved by our own desires. We need to be careful with that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, similar to what he just had written in in 10. We just read, he writes this. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated. I will not be mastered by anything. You see, legalism and license go to the same place. They lead to the same place of being enslaved. And Paul said, yes, I have freedom, but I will not use my freedom in such a way that I myself will be mastered by my own desires. And so we ask the question, am I? And to what degree am I? And how do I fight against that? I don't want my freedom to be a base of operations to enslave me because it will. It will lead us down that road. The next section we're going to look at next week, we see where this goes. And the, there's a whole list of things at the work of the flesh. And he says they're evident where they have taken a hold of people and they rule them, even those professing to believe, be believers. It will lead us away from our freedom back into a road of enslavement and slavery to it. Exactly the place where the gospel is intended to take us away. So our questions, do I see the end of the law to be an end, the, the, the freedom to be an end? Do I see and understand it to be ultimately a means to an end? Or am I in danger of it enslaving me? It's at that point we repent and we say, okay, we need help. So that's two questions about how we live. Now, that's the negative side. Don't be enslaved. But rather, use your freedom in such a way that you're not enslaved. It has a base of operations. But then he goes on to say, but rather serve Conclude with this picture that he gives them. Using our freedom, we're called to serve others. Our freedom is to be oriented in this way. And there's a very simple question to ask. Is my freedom being used in proper ways? Is my freedom really being oriented by this love for God? And there's only one way we can really see that, right? Is am I serving? How is my freedom being used? Is it being used in the service of others? Is it really being used in loving my neighbor as myself? Is it really visible in my life or not? Do I see 
myself as a servant to others or do I see others as objects to serve me? And you realize that line right there is huge. If I understand I'm called to be a servant, that that affects every facet of my life. There's no role that I play in which that servant's heart doesn't and can't make a huge difference in the way that I live in this freedom oriented in this kind of way can make can call me to, to live and to, to extend this love of Christ to others around me. If you think about the roles that we live in, we live in our jobs and our homes and schools and sports teams and churches and neighborhoods as this idea of serving our neighbors ourselves, what that would do, the impact that would have. Think about our roles as bosses or employers, employees, as husbands and wives, as moms and dads, as children, as brothers and sisters, as older and younger, as coaches and players, as neighbors, and dare I say, as even fellow drivers on the highway. What if I saw myself as a servant? How would that change the way I lived in that? How would it change and orient my freedom now in Christ in that direction? Away from myself. Away from serving myself and getting what I want. See, it's not about a personality profile. To talk about a servant's heart, it's not just about a gift that you have. It's about understanding the gospel. And it says, do you see the freedom that you have in Christ will evidence itself in this way? In serving others in some way. And if it doesn't, then you're not understanding your freedom. You're using your freedom for yourself and we're called to do that. And it makes the beauty, it makes servants of us. It turns us into servants as we understand what that and what we are called to do. This freedom is to be used as a means to love and in it it will grow a servant's heart. Keep us from being, you know, addicted and enslaved to other things. It's not an end in of itself, but it points us in a direction. It orients us as it's animated by the very Spirit of God in our lives. That's where it takes us. That's where we go. It takes time. It's not exhausted by any stretch, but that's that's the growth. And here's the beauty of this. As we understand what this freedom does, what's happened in our own lives, we understand the gospel. It allows us to see each other in this building. It allows us to see others outside this building with new eyes. Eyes of servants who want to help. Those who have been enslaved and those who have a message to bring. Eyes of compassion and wanting to help and reach out, not just keep, not just use my freedom for myself. I'll conclude with a quote, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he was describing this freedom, this, this loving our neighbor as ourself and the role that it plays in our lives. He says it like this. We see them, that's our neighbors, we see them now no longer as hateful people who are trying to rob us of our rights or trying to beat us in a race for money or position or fame. We see them as we see ourselves, as victims of sin and Satan, as dupes of the God of this world, as fellow creatures who are under the wrath of God and hellbound. We have an entirely new view of them. We see them to be exactly as we are ourselves. And we are both in a terrible predicament. And we can do nothing but both of us together must run to Christ and avail ourselves of his wonderful grace. We begin to enjoy it together and we want to share it together. That is how it works. It's the only way whereby we can ever do unto others as we would have them do unto us. It is when we really are really loving our neighbor as ourselves. We have been delivered from the thraldom, from the kingdom of self and begin to enjoy 
the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, this is where life is found. It's found in truly serving and using our freedom in that way. As we understand ourselves to be in the same predicament, gives us compassion to the world around us, compassion to each other. And in that way, what happens is that kind of environment, that soil in which the grace of God comes, frees us. The very life of God, if you will, forms us, within us, enables us, oriented by this freedom. What grows there is selflessness, sacrifice, truly a willing to serve. You see, what's being formed in that moment, in these times throughout our life, is the very nature of Christ within us, through His Spirit. The One who came, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The One who laid His life down. And that's what the Gospel calls us to do. And our freedom calls us to do that. Now, there's a challenge, and next week we're going to pick it up. How do we really do that? How do we really live out this life that's been placed within us? How do we live this out in such a way that's not our work, but it's something that He does? He gets glory. We'll we'll, we'll try to answer that question next week. Let's pray.